The Testarossa name came from the legendary 1957 Ferrari 250 Testarossa race car that won the 1957 World Sports Car Championship. The word Testarossa literally means redhead in Italian and refers to the red painted cam covers of its V12, a tradition that started with the Ferrari 500TR of 1956. At the time, it used a 2000cc inline 4 but the 1957 250TR would make the name famous, and the 1984 512 would cement the Testarossa name in history. Welcome to another episode of Gasoline and Caffeine. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to episode 5 of Gasoline and Caffeine. Today we're going to be talking about the Ferrari 512 Testarossa and the history of the Testarossa name. Uh, the 512TR is one of my favorite cars ever. Um, I remember getting it when I was a kid. I got a toy, I think. Um, I tried to find it before the episode and I couldn't. It's probably in a in a cabinet or a, a drawer or something somewhere. I'm sure that I still have it. Uh, it was a little wind-up toy. It was like, I don't know, 118th scale, 120th scale, something like that. And I absolutely love the thing. It was beautiful. I loved it. And I've liked that car ever since. Uh, so I decided to do a, a whole episode on it. So uh, that initial part was just kind of a, a real quick rundown of where it comes from. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, 250 Testarossa real quick. And then we're going to jump into how the 512 came about, um, including its predecessor, uh, the 512BB or the Berlin at a Boxer. All right, let's get into it. So, the 250 Testarossa was initially developed to compete in the 1957 World Sports Car Championship racing season, in response to rule changes planned for the upcoming 1958 season that would enforce a maximum engine displacement of 3 liters. The objective was to bring on the existing 4-cylinder, 2-liter, 500TR, 500TRC Testarossa by integrating the more powerful, Colombo-designed 3-liter V12 as used in the 250 GT series. Along with this new engine, Ferrari improved the existing Testarossa chassis and bodywork. As with other Ferrari racing cars, Enzo Ferrari demanded absolute reliability from all components, resulting in a somewhat conservative design approach that aimed for endurance racing success through durability rather than overall speed. Carlo Chitti was the chief designer during 250 during the 250TR development, and his continual experimentation counterbalanced Mr. Ferrari's conservatism and led to the many revisions that kept the car competitive through 1962. Other Ferrari engineers had major contributions to the 250TR, notably Giotto Bizzarini, who helped with aerodynamic improvements for the 1961 season, and Andrea Freschetti, who helped develop the first 250TR prototype before his 1957 death during a test drive. The 250TR was raced and continually developed by Scuderia Ferrari from 57 through 62. In total, 33 250TRs of all types were built between 57 and 62. Included in this total are 19 customer versions of the 250TR sold to independent racing teams, replacing the 500TRC for this market. All customer cars had left-hand drive Scaglietti pontoon fender bodies and live rear axles. They did not benefit from the continual improvements to Scuderia Ferrari cars, although many independent teams modified their 250TRs or purchased ex-Scuderia Ferrari cars in order to stay competitive. The 512 Testarossa can give thanks to the flaws born from the famous 1981 Ferrari 512 Berlinetta Boxer, which is also a very good-looking car in my opinion. 
Some issues that the 512TR was designed to fix included an interior space that would get increasingly hot due to the hoses leading from the front-mounted radiator all the way back to the mid-mountain engine. One way that the Ferrari engineers decided to combat this was to design the 512TR to be larger than the BBI. The 512TR's wheelbase was 6 inches wider and 2 inches longer than that of the Boxer, as well as 3 inches longer overall, as in bumper-to-bumper. This extra overall space within the new design was used to accommodate luggage in a carpeted storage compartment under the forward opening hood. It also increased the space behind the seats in the cabin as well as slightly more headroom with a half inch taller roof than that of the Boxer. This new design came from a team known as Panin Farina out of Cambiano, Torino, Italy. Founded by Battista Panin Farina in 1930, this design firm and coach builder have been recruited by the likes of such legendary automakers as Alfa Romeo, Maserati, and Fiat. For the new Ferrari Testarossa, the Panin Farina team consisted of Ian Cameron, Guido Campolo, Diogo Otina, and Emmanuel Nicosia, while being led by chief designer Leonardo Fioravanti. I know I'm not going to say most of these right, and I apologize in advance. Theo Ravanti was trained in the dark arts of aerodynamics, and his initial focus was to minimize the size of the side intakes that would be necessary on this redesign. But these side intakes could also not be left entirely open due to safety legislation in the United States. Eventually, they decided to make the now iconic intakes part of the styling of the car, one that eventually became a signature of the late 80s automobile industry. Another side effect of this new styling was an incredibly lower drag coefficient than that of its predecessor, as well as Lamborghini's poster-worthy Countach. The Testarossa came in with a coefficient of 0.36 to the Countach's 0.42. Someone much more intelligent than me will understand the significance of that. Uh, This meant that the new Testarossa did not need a spoiler, which led to the aggressive and iconic wedge shape. The styling of the Testarossa was unlike the Boxer in almost every way which was not a popular decision among many fans. These new intakes were less than affectionately referred to as egg slicers or cheese graters. These new strakes spanned from near the front of each door all the way to the rear fenders. These were needed due to laws in various countries that did not allow for large openings on cars. While not widely accepted, these intakes led to the Testarossa's twin side radiators near the engine at the rear instead of one single front-mounted radiator, eliminating a significant amount of plumbing and allowing for a much cooler interior. After passing through the engine bay, the cooling air exited through the vents at the engine lid and the tail. These strakes also made the Testarossa wider at the rear than at the front, increasing stability as well as handling. Another unique aspect of this redesign was a single, high-mounted, side-view mirror on the driver's side. On the US-bound models, this mirror was eventually lowered to a more or less normal placement for the 87 model year and was eventually joined by a passenger-side mirror to allow for safe lane changes. The power plant destined for the Testarossa was a naturally aspirated 4.9-liter longitudinally-mounted flat 12 with a dry sump lubricating dual overhead cams and 48 valves within its 12 cylinders. Adding a compression ratio of 9.2 to 1, and all of these numbers ultimately combined to provide a maximum power of 385 horsepower at 6,300 RPM and a maximum torque of 361 pound-feet at 4,500 RPM. Some early U.S. versions had the same engine with slightly fewer ponies at about 380. Acceleration clocked in at 0 to 60 in 5.2 seconds, 0 to 100 in 11.4, and a standing quarter mile came in at about 13.5 seconds, with an estimated top speed of 180 miles an hour. The first Testarossa name badge to ever grace the backside of any Ferrari was known as the Type F110, the direct successor to the Berlinetta Boxer. 
Produced from 1984 to 1991, 10,000 Testarossa units in total were built, including the final two revisions to the Testarossa name. These included the strikingly beautiful 512 Testarossa and the legendary F512M. These are still one of the most mass-produced Ferrari models ever. The first time the public was given the chance to lay eyes on the new prancing horse hardware was at the 1984 Paris Auto Show. Going up against the likes of the Countach, the Alpina B10, and the legendary BMW M5, the Testarossa had its work cut out. But to no surprise of anyone, it was an immediate classic. An instant 80s icon and a poster car for an entire generation. Gracing the cover of Road and Mac Track magazine nine separate times within five years, it had no issues leaving showroom floors. Celebrity owners of a Testarossa included Elton John, Rod Stewart, Michael Jordan, and even Mike Tyson. The car was an instant pop culture classic. Jack Nerad of Driving Today stated, The Testarossa was a car designed and built to cash in on an image, and since cashing in was what the 80s were all about, it was the perfect vehicle for its time. The saving grace was, it was also a damn good automobile. Although it had many successes on everyday roads, it never competed in any racing events unlike the 512BB before it, but that didn't stop the Testarossa from appearing anywhere you looked. As Ferrari's flagship model of the 80s, the car was everywhere. Whether it was a magazine, a TV show, a movie, or a video game, the Testarossa had plenty of notoriety in its own right, from the famous arcade hit Outrun to the surprisingly attractive white version in later seasons of Miami Vice. The car had become synonymous with yuppies of the 80s and an icon of 1980s retro culture. Its signature side strakes had become a popular aftermarket body component for wide arc body kits. This, these side strakes also spawned the body kits that were designed for cars such as the Pontiac Fiero and the Mazda B-Series pickup trucks, also known as truck Starossa kits, in addition to a wide variety of Japanese and American sports cars and motorcycles. Of the few Testarossa variations, there was the rare Testarossa Spider, of which only one actual Spider was officially designed and built by Panin Farina for then-Fiat chairman Gianni Agnelli to commemorate his 20 years of chairmanship at Fiat. Agnelli's one-off Testarossa Spider had an Argento Nürburgring exterior, a white magnolia leather interior with a dark blue stripe running above the matte black sills, and a white electronically operated soft top that could be manually stowed away. The vehicle was completed and delivered to Agnelli within four months and had a solid silver Ferrari logo on the hood instead of an aluminum one. The silver theme refers to the Elemental Silver's periodic table abbreviation, AG, which is the first two letters of Agnelli's name. Despite numerous requests from customers for a spider variant of the Testarossa, Ferrari refused due to spatial and structural challenges that would be difficult to resolve. As a compromise, Panin Farina and some aftermarket firms such as Strammen, Pavesi, Lawrence and & Rankel, and Koenig Specials offered unofficial spider conversions on special request. Other than the collapsible top, this single production spider was no different than the normal Testarossa available in the European market. It had a standard flat 12 engine, though the top speed was somewhat lower due to the excessive weight, mostly in thanks to the reinforced chassis. The only differences, other than being the convertible, obviously, were that the Spider's front and door windows were shorter than those of the standard car, and it had a unique transmission manufactured by Vallejo, which is convertible to both automatic and the standard 5-speed manual at the push of a button, a technology far ahead of its time. The special transmission was installed on special request of Agnelli as he suffered from a chronic leg injury. The original car owned by an Agnelli family friend was auctioned off in 2016 at the price of 1 million U.S. dollars. After finding that statistic, I was curious as to what the top 10 most expensive Ferraris ever sold were. And so I found uh, via jamesedition.com the top 10 most expensive Ferraris as of July 20th, 2021. So starting with 
uh, 10th place, the 2015 Ferrari 458 Special Aperta rear-wheel drive, which is approximately 786,399 US dollars. A rare 458 Special Aperta uh, ended up selling in Japan. Among other features, the car boasts a light beige interior with special stitching, 20-inch forged gold and diamond rims, and gold brake calipers. This model was unveiled at the 2014 Paris Motor Show and led to the list of fastest street-legal convertible Ferraris until the LaFerrari Aperta took over. Gold rims. That There's no way. Gold is so soft, I don't understand how that would work. I mean, Ferraris are probably not really heavy, but still. Anyway, number nine, the Ferrari 599 GTO. Uh, about $879,106. The 599 GTO, which GTO stood for Gran Turismo Omologato, Omologato, which is probably homologated in Italian? Maybe not, I don't know. Is a real legal version of the 599XX track day car. The 6-liter V12 engine of the GTO produced about 660 horsepower and comes from the legendary Ferrari Enzo. The power is transmitted via an F1 six-speed gearbox. The GTO scored the best time in the history of Ferrari on the racetrack at Fiorano. Coming in at 8th, 1957 Ferrari 250 GT Coupe Bowano, which sold for about 1.195 million US dollars. Uh, four classic Ferraris are on this list, and one of them is a beautiful 250 GT, Ferrari's first true production model. The Coupe Bowano version was manufactured by Pininfarina's partner, Caro Zaria Bowano, a coach building company. Although the car is not so widely known as the 250 GTO, its price, both on car auctions and on the open market, has risen above $1 million US dollars. With that said, the 250 GT is one of the best Ferraris to buy for an investment. Yeah, I'll just, uh, let me just grab $1.2 million and go buy one of those. Coming in in seventh is the 2017 Ferrari F12 TDF, which sold for about $1.35 million US dollars. Uh, the F512 TDF pays homage to the Tour de France automobile, which was regularly won by Ferrari in the 50s and 60s. The Tour de France automobile is a car race, not a bike race. If you were as confused as I was the first time you heard that, you're not alone. Uh, the model boasts excellent performance and sharp looks, being the last Ferrari model designed at Panin Farina. On top of that, the version put up for sale via James Edition is finished in the historical colorway Grigio Ferro with unique two-tone racing stripes. Sixth, the 2011 Ferrari 599 Panin Farina. 1.6 million US dollars. With only 80 examples, this limited edition model was created to commemorate the 80th anniversary of Pininfarina. The 599 Pininfarina officially is a member of the most limited Ferrari series and one of the finest sports cars Ferrari has ever built. Its powerful 6 liter V12 engine is combined not only with the modified exhaust from the 599XX race car, but also with a removable top for pleasant rides. Fifth, the 1991 Ferrari F40. 1.873 million US dollars. The closer we get to the $2 million US line, the less diversity we see. Only iconic classic models, sports car legends, and supercars rise to this level. Both the first and the second descriptors are true of the F40, the successor to the 288 GTO, and the final Ferrari automobile personally approved by Enzo Ferrari. This mid-engine rear-wheel drive sports car was designed to celebrate Ferrari's 40th anniversary. Coming in fourth is the 1984 Ferrari 288 GTO, just as previously mentioned. This one, 2.265 million US dollars. With GT for Gran Turismo and O for Omo Legato, the 280 GTO is an exotic homologation of Ferrari sports cars. This model, equipped with a GTO Evolution kit, was considered high-tech and avant-garde for its time. Its modifications included the use of Kevlar and carbon fiber, as well as engine, chassis, and safety system upgrades. Uh, coming in a third, the 2003 Enzo Ferrari. 2.4 million US dollars. 
The Enzo was designed by Ken Okuyama, Paninfarina's head of design. Before production began, a limited run of 399 units were sold to customers who previously had bought the F40 and F50 models. With an initial price of $659,330, one of the cars later sold at Sotheby's auction for $1.1 million U.S. dollars. And now, in 2021, this iconic car is the third most expensive Ferrari in our stock. And second is the 2017 Ferrari FXXK, $4.1 million U.S. dollars. The FXXK was the brand's first limited-production track-day hybrid. The model is based on the LaFerrari, street-legal hybrid sports car. The K in the car's name refers to the kinetic energy recovery system, which is used to maximize performance, otherwise known as KERS, which is, if most people are familiar with F1 at all, they had it for a short time. I don't know that they still have it, uh, but they did have it for a short time, and the way that it, uh, from my understanding of Formula 1, the way that it worked was it recovered kinetic energy from braking, I think, and then it stored it. And like a capacitor or something, I'm really not, I'm not hundred percent sure how it works. And then they were allowed to use it, um, periodically or each lap, I think something like that. And they only had so many times they could use it. And it was basically like a, a push to pass system, something like that. And this specific Ferrari FXXK had that built into it. Um, like the previous FXX and the 599XX, the cars are kept and maintained by Ferrari and are available to the owners on track day events. Must be nice to spend 4.1 million US dollars to have someone else take care of your car all the time and not even be able to park it in your own house. And then coming in first at 4.733 million US dollars is the 2017 LaFerrari Aperta. In 2017, Ferrari LaFerrari Aperta became the most expensive car sold at auction. The car was auctioned at RM Sotheby's for approximately 9.9 million US dollars. There are four LaFerrari Aperta cars for sale on James Edition with prices above $4 million and six other LaFerraris with prices starting from $2.7 million U.S. dollars. So I just wanted to uh, look at the top 10 Ferraris ever sold because it was just interesting to me that that Spider sold for about a million. Um, that Spider was the only one of its kind that was uh, truly from Ferrari. Um, and it was the only one that they ever built, and it was requested by... Um, Agnelli and, and like I said it was the only one that was ever built because as I said before the Ferrari just didn't want to mess with all of the spatial and structural challenges to be able to to uh, produce that thing there are a lot of um, second hand um, spiders out there that you will see that are 512 TRs but they're, most of them are not real uh, in fact just about all of them are not real because it, chances are that, that uh 512 that Agnelli owned is probably sitting in a showroom somewhere and it will probably never move again um but a lot of people did it themselves and then as i said there was um a lot of aftermarket aftermarket places um that partnered with Paninfarina to make unofficial spider conversions um but beyond that there was only one true spider even though you might see some there was only one true actual spider 512 Testarossa in 1991, Ferrari started production on what would be the first of the final two variations in the Testarossa line, the first being the 512TR and the second being the F512M. We're going to start with the 512TR. The 512TR's engine was extensively reworked. Nicocell liners were added along with a new air intake system, Bosch engine management system, larger intake valves, and a revised exhaust system. In addition to the higher peak power, the modifications delivered a broader power band for better acceleration. The power plant of the 512TR was, was similar to the original Testarossa, but with a bump to power. 
clocking in at 422 horsepower, a 0 to 60 time of 4.8 seconds, 13.2 second quarter mile time, and a top speed of 195 miles an hour. It was quite the improvement over the 1984 model. In 1995, a recall was issued regarding fuel hose fittings. Over 400 cars were affected by this recall, which was largely caused by variances in temperature and environment. This was not the only recall, however. Another was issued for about 2,000 units due to seatbelt issues. More specifically, the passive restraint system was failing and only providing safety and restraint to the lap belt and not the shoulder belt, and this could affect either driver or passenger. Gear shifting difficulty, which was a prolonged complaint about the Testarossa, was eased with a new single plate clutch, sliding ball bearings, and an improved angle for the gear shift knob. The improved braking system added larger cross-drilled front rotors. The quicker steering, low, lower profile tires, and new shock settings improved handling. Most importantly, engine and gearbox position was revamped, which improved the center of gravity, improving handling, and making the car easier to drive. The interior also received updates, with the center console split from the dashboard and relocated climate controls. Pietro Camordella at Panin Farina was tasked with redesigning the body of the car for better integration of the newly included spoilers and the new engine cover. The design was updated in line with the recently introduced Ferrari 348. The year prior to the final 512TR was the official launch year of the F512M. The F512M would be the final variant to bear the Testarossa name, and only 501 would be produced. The M variant would be virtually the same mechanically, while the majority of the changes would be purely aesthetic. The power plant was the same 4.9 liter V12. But with this last hurrah, the power was buffed to 434 horsepower and gained a 10.4 to 1 compression ratio. Ferrari also added titanium connecting rods and a lighter crankshaft that allowed the engine to rev all the way to 7,500 RPM, 3,000 higher than that of the original 84 512. This also meant that it could scoot along the road much faster. The zero to 60 times improved to 4.5 seconds, 0 to 110.2, and a top speed of 196. The most notable changes for the F512M were the exterior. They included front and rear lamp design changes. The original pop-up headlamps were replaced by two fixed square units, something that I was not a fan of when they redesigned it. The rear tail lamps were rounded out, and the bumpers had been restyled to achieve a more unified look. The car also featured a different front lid with two twin NACA ducts, N-A-C-A. These NACA ducts are two small inlets on the hood of the 512M. This style of duct first appeared on aircraft developed by NASA in the mid-40s. It was designed to smooth turbulent airflow into jet engines to cool, cool them more effectively. Other vehicles to feature this style of duct included the Lamborghini Countach, Ferrari's own F40, the Dodge Viper, and some early 70s Mustangs. The Ferrari F512M would be discontinued in 1996 and would take with it the Testarossa name. While some models would be inspired or influenced by past Testarossas, no other model would be graced with its name. Some concepts to be based around the 512 would include the Ferrari Mythos, the Kalani Ferrari Testa d'Oro, which was designed to break land speed records on salt flats, which it would do in 91 with a speed of 218 miles an hour, the F90, which has an interesting history. For almost 18 years, Ferrari denied that the F90 ever existed. The project was eventually discovered along with the fact that six were made for the Sultan of Brunei in 1988. The project was managed by Enrico Fumia, the head of the Research and Development Department at Panin Farina. At the time, the project was so top secret that even Ferrari themselves didn't know about it. Fumia styled the car and said that the F90 name referred to the car being a Ferrari of the 90s. 
The F90 used a Testarossa chassis and a stock Testarossa power plant. Other concepts inspired by Testarossa included the FX and even the FZ93. Ferrari would opt not to fill the production hole that the Testarossa left. Instead, they moved on to cars like the F50, the 456, the 550, and the 430 in the mid-2000s. The closest Ferrari would come to recreating the 512 series would be the 360s and eventually the 458s. The 458s I am a huge fan of. I love those cars, especially the 09 458 Italia. Maybe one day Ferrari will elect to dust off the Testarossa name badge and give another glimpse into the exciting time that was the 1980s. But until then, we can only hope and maybe pass the time by staring at some of the lovely new Ferrari 488s. So that's it. Uh, That's the history of the Ferrari Testarossa name. Um, While it is pretty condensed, um, I'm sure it does leave a lot of stuff out. As my first time researching something like this, something is in-depth. I typed the entire thing in Word. Uh, hoping that it was going to be much longer than it was. I'm only at about, I don't know, 25 minutes. Um, but I feel like I did pretty good. It was the first one uh, in this type of podcast for me. Most of the time I'm just um, talking off the top of my head, whatever comes to my brain about whatever subject that I felt like talking about that day. Um, this one was the first one to include a subject and have actual research and, and facts and, and data, things like that. Um, I use a lot of different places for this to find all of the... Um, information and everything that I told you guys. Some of it is not 100% accurate because I could not find a specifics or um, as I was searching, I might find um, conflicting information on different sites. Um, Wikipedia was one. I know that's not the most popular, but I also used Ferrari's own site for some of their stuff too, as well as other independent sites uh, for information. So I just included what I thought was the best or what I thought was the most accurate. That, of course, doesn't mean it's right. That just means that's what I, based on everything I found, that's the one that I thought is probably the most accurate. Um, But I hope you guys like this style of episode. Um, I don't know that I'm going to do it every single week, but if it's something you guys like, please let me know. I have no problem doing it. I enjoy uh, searching up these kinds of cars um, and doing the research and and typing up a whole... um, information sheet, a whole script essentially uh, to read off of because that's essentially what I was doing this whole time was just reading off of a a script that I typed up in Word. Uh, It's fun to me. I like it. I'm, you know, obviously I like cars. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. Um, So doing the history on that type of stuff or uh, stories, you know, if you guys have stories of certain cars that you would like me to to research and and, uh, talk about, I have no problem doing that as well. Um, I liked it. Uh, Let me know if you guys liked it. Let me know how you guys think I did. Um, like I said, follow me on Instagram, gasoline and caffeine pod, please follow me on there because that's the only way I know for sure, um, that anybody at all is engaging. Um, I can check my anchor stats and I can see how many downloads and plays that I have, but obviously, you know, I don't know what people think of the podcast. Um, I have no idea what people think, uh, uh, just based on those numbers alone, it tells me how many people downloaded it, but it doesn't tell me, you know, does, did this person think it was worth five stars? Or did the person think it was worth one star? I don't, I, you know, I don't know. So if you guys are listening to this, please follow me on Instagram and please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. But most importantly, please find me on Instagram and let me know what you guys think. Um, I'll post on there every now and then about stuff I'm going to do or stories or updates, like if the episode's taking longer to get done than I expected, like this one. I wanted to have this done almost a week ago, um, but instead now it's six days later. Um, just because of work and everything. Um, I'm sure I've mentioned it before. I work for Amazon, um, and we're starting to go into our peak season, and so hours are starting to get crazy and pick up a lot. Plus, with a newborn, well, not necessarily newborn anymore. She's 10 months old almost. Um, 
just with all of that combined, it sometimes it makes it hard to be able to sit down and um, record a whole podcast. Sometimes it's I just don't have the energy, and then sometimes I just don't have the ability to sit down because I'm either watching her or I'm at work, obviously. You know, and work's about to get even crazier. We're start to about we're about to start um, twelve hour days uh, for the majority of uh, December, so it's going to make it even harder. But I like doing this, and like I said, if you guys like this stuff too, please let me know. The only way I know is if you guys tell me. So please find me on Instagram and send me a message and let me know. Or you can email me. My email's in the show description. Um, you guys can just send me an email and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm this listener or whatever, and I, I really like what you do. Or I really don't like what you do or whatever. It's things that you guys have suggestions for. If there's another uh, podcast that you like and you like the style that they do it better, it doesn't matter. Just tell me. I can't get better if you guys don't tell me how to get better. You know, I'm essentially, when I do this, I'm talking into a void. I'm just I'm just talking into an echo chamber. I can't hear anybody's opinions about anything I'm doing. Not that I give too much of a crap about most people's opinions, but I do want this to be something that people can enjoy listening to. You know, so if you have tips, if you have something that you would like me to change or something that you would like me to do, just let me know. I have no problem with it at all. Um, so with that being said, I think that's where I'm going to end it. I know this show is a tad bit shorter than you guys are used to. Most of the time I try to hit anywhere between like, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour. And I'm just now hitting 30 minutes. Uh, so I know it's a bit shorter than you guys would like, or you guys are used to, or you guys are used to. Um, but that's just, uh, that's kind of the way it went. I thought for sure this thing would be longer looking at it in word. I have 17 pages with almost 4,000 words. I thought for sure it would take me longer. Uh, but it didn't, I guess I talk fast. I don't know. Um, so anyway, this has been episode five of gasoline and caffeine, the history of the 512 TR and the Testarossa name. Thank you guys for listening to this. Please, like I said, find me on Instagram um, and let me know how you like this episode if you want me to do more like this. And then if you could, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating. That's the only one I can see. I can't see the rest. I can't see Google Podcasts. Um, I can't see... There's a few other that it's on, and I can't I, don't, I can't name all of them. But I can't see the the ratings. If I, I'm sure I could figure out a way, but the easiest one for me to look at is Apple Podcasts. So like I said, my name's Cameron. This has been episode five of Gasoline and Caffeine. Uh, thank you guys for listening, and I will see you next time.